0: I've just been really encouraged with what I see the Lord doing at Waypoint. And so it might come as a shock, um, and I'll explain why I'm going to teach on what I'm teaching on. Um, it might come as a shock what we're going to talk about today. Um, but I had a pastor tell me one time that, that you want to preach sermons like what we're going to study when things are going good at the church um, so that the church understands you're not preaching out of anger, out of carnality, anything like that. Today, I want to look at God's wrath. Um, and I'm going to take some time in my introduction to tell you why. Uh, it's One, it's a teaching that the church, unfortunately, has avoided. And I think it's had some disastrous consequences, uh, both for the church as well as the society at large. So I want to take some time in my introduction. Usually, I, I, I don't... I don't take this much time but I want to explain what I've been witnessing going on in the culture. So if you haven't been with us at Waypoint, we've been uh we've been working through different series, we've been going through uh book studies and we have a couple weeks here where they're just kind of free weeks I call them. And uh and so these are these topics are always topics that I as a pastor am, am kind of on the side dealing with thinking about wrestling with uh, especially in relation to what's going on in the church and outside of the church. If, if you don't know me, part of my degree in seminary was, um, was philosophy. And so we dealt a lot with, with atheists and had to read and converse, become conversant with their works. I want to read a couple portions of scripture from, from two different atheists. Richard Dawkins, who you, you might know of, very aggressive outspoken, militant atheist. Um, he opens his book, The God Delusion, saying this about God. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, Felicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasticistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He doesn't have a favorable view of God. Christopher Hitchens, who's who's passed away actually, uh, and whose brother is actually a believer, um, opens his book called God is Not Great, saying this. He says he, he blames his atheism on God. He says, if the intended reader of this book should want to go beyond disagreement with its author and try to identify the sins and deformities that animated him to write it, then he or she will be quarreling with the unknowable and ineffable creator who presumably opted to make me this way. It's common in our society um, for people to blame God for their own problems or the problems of a society in general. Uh, that's nothing new. It's it's been around forever. Um, unfortunately and sadly, there's no shortage of this. Uh, people who um, who blame God. But but what is kind of sad to me is that atheists, as I read them, I think have a good point in some places. They ought, they look at the church and people who profess to be Christians or religious and profess to be moral. And they look at their lives and say, you know what, your life is really no different than mine. And so that gives no shortage of ammunition to these men who want to uh, malign and blaspheme the name of our Lord. Um, when you look at, I teach the worldview classes, you guys know, and when you look at worldviews in general, there's, there's really three worldviews. There's atheism, naturalism, uh, pantheism or transcendentalism, and then theism. And, and, and all the other views kind of fall into one of those um, places. In, in an atheistic, naturalistic worldview where, where they don't believe that there's a God, um, I've, I've come across some very interesting quotes by men who want to justify their sin and, and, and why they, they blame their atheism on a lack of evidence, but really it, these quotes reveal it's not the evidence that lacks, it's a, it's a will that lacks Julian Huxley, who's who was the grandson of a man named Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley was known as uh, Darwin's bulldog. Um, Julian Huxley was a very famous scientist. He admitted this, that he embraced Darwinian evolution out of a desire for sexual freedom. Now this is not a small scientist. He was he was made head scientist over the United Nations or something like that. I can't remember what exactly it was, but he was asked, why do people believe in evolution? He admitted, he said, the reason we accepted Darwinism, even without proof, is because we didn't want God to interfere with our sexual mores. Lee Strobel, if you've read his books, was a former atheist. He wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. He said this, I was more than happy to latch on to Darwinism as an excuse to jettison the idea of God so I could unabashedly pursue my own agenda uh, and lie without moral constraints. So I want to be clear that that not all Darwinists believe this, right? Some Darwinists believe in Darwinian evolution um, because of what they're reading in, in science, um, but this is an admission that that's not always the case. There's there's often a will behind why they're believing what they're believing, and not only that, a lot of Darwinists live morally better lives than professing believers. And so this is not a true statement for everyone. I don't mean it to be. I'm simply meaning it to be. Um, in naturalism, Darwinism gives an excuse to live how you want to live, and another. Uh, Ivy League biology professor stated to a Christian author, he told him, Darwinism is morally comfortable. If Darwinism is true, if there is no God and we all evolve from slimy green algae, then I can sleep with whomever I want. In Darwinism, there's no moral accountability. And he's right. If there's no God, there's no moral accountability. But it's not just an atheistic, naturalistic worldview that this moral unaccountability flourishes in. It flourishes in a pantheistic, a polytheistic, and even theistic worldviews. Let me give you some examples. In our in our polytheistic, pantheistic worldview in America, we embrace philosophical and moral relativism as well as religious pluralism. What does that mean? Well, philosophical relativism holds that there's no ultimate truth. That truth is simply what you want it to be, and we have no way of asserting an absolute truth over any other claim. Moral relativism holds that there's no ultimate standard of morality. In other words, the the phrase you hear all the time, don't tell me how to live my life, captures that thought. Um, Both both these philosophical and moral relativism uh, have been devastating to our culture. But on top of this, America especially is is religiously plural. Plural. What does that mean? Religious pluralism is is the belief that there's no way to determine which professing religion is true, and therefore it's relegated and separated from any fact or truth and simply held as a blind faith. If that's what you believe, that's fine. But don't push it over on us. The problem with that is, if that's true, then it's an absolute truth for everyone, everywhere, In all times the problem is not uh, whether absolute truth exists it's how do we know which one it is because when you make even a relativistic statement and assert that that's true for everyone everywhere at all times you've just made an absolute truth so it's a self-defeating position but what it's left with us with is a wrecked idea of society of humanity of morals of everything else. So it's not just in atheism and naturalism that this uh, moral unaccountability flourishes. In a pluralistic society like America, we see what's happening. I want to make this clear that people who embrace religious pluralism are often very religious people themselves. They're very religious people. They're spiritual people. They might themselves hold to a moral standard but they have no way of asserting that moral standard as being true for everyone. And so the decay continues. So I want to tell you what gave rise to this sermon topic. Um, I've, I've been clear with you. I try. I really like Timothy Keller on this point. He really tries to follow what's going on in society and culture and speak to it from the pulpit. Um, I try to watch the news pretty closely and, and, and keep an eye out for these things. And and what I've been seeing the last several years, especially even within the last month, has really begun to terrify me. It's it's more than simply the lo- the the normal lies and deceptions that you see being propagated, right? It's more than that. You you turn on the news, and in any given day, it's pretty horrendous what's reported. The crimes that are being committed—they're they're vicious, um, rapes, murders, drug deals, suicides, thefts. It's not just that those are happening, but what we're beginning to see now is is the complete disregard and absence of any moral conscience whatsoever in our society. And it's it's these reports that gave rise to to why I want to talk about the wrath of God. My contention is this. In the West, we are losing our individual moral conscience and it's manifesting itself in the loss of a societal moral conscience now. Let me give you some examples, so I'm not just saying that. In 2016, you may have heard some of these stories. In 2016, there were two teenage boys who had a fascination with horror movies. They loved the violence, they loved the gore, and they started trying to film their own. They began with torturing animals, filming it, and delighting in it. That didn't satisfy their lust for blood, so they targeted a student, a fellow student in their class, a female Went to her house, filmed the whole way, talked about it, made a movie out of it, cut the power to her house, waited for her boyfriend to leave, snuck in the house, and then began to stab her. And then got back in the car and filmed themselves again. Made their own little horror movie. It was horrendous. Horrendous crime. In 2017, it was broadcast on national news. There's four people who kidnapped a mentally handicapped young man because he was wearing a Uh, certain political parties' hat, but he was also mentally handicapped. They kidnapped him. And and by the way, four, three of these four people who were the kidnappers were younger than 18. They kidnapped this man, held him for 48 hours. They beat him. They cut him. Forced him to drink toilet water. All while they're broadcasting it live on Facebook. And they took joy in it. Complete absence of conscience in it. It was heartbreaking to watch. It's heartbreaking to watch. If you've been watching the news, you recently saw the reports of the nine family members in Mexico murdered by the drug cartel, even little children. No moral conscience prohibiting these drug dealers from killing little kids. Even when the mom gets out of the car, placing her kids in the car, trying to protect them, they gun down the mom then go gun down her kids. There's also, if you've seen this, this trend that's happened for the last seven to ten years of the flash mobs who all run into a store and rob the store. Have you seen these? It's very prevalent, easy to find. Uh, Most recently I saw in the news a, a flash mob in Philadelphia of some 60 kids who all went into a Walgreens and ran in and just devastated the store, stole stuff at will, uh, brazenly, but what was, what was different about this is the whole time they're laughing, filming each other, high-fiving each other. It was fun for them. But what really motivated me to preach this morning was, was an example that came up just this week. In broad daylight, the middle of the day in California, four men walk into a Nike outlet store, very calmly, slowly, get a bunch of shoes, clothes, pick it up, and simply walk out. Zero conscience, zero fear. And, and we, we observe this stuff going on in our culture, and we say, what's going on? How did we get to this place where, where especially our youth have no moral conscience anymore? Um, there's always been sin. There's always going to be sin until the Lord returns. But what scares me is that we are beginning to see the undoing of a moral society in America. And this generation that's manifesting this is going to be our leaders. They're going to be our leaders. You know, what what distinguished America, at least from other countries, is that our Constitution was found on moral principles. That gave it its strengths. When that's gone, at least for a society, there is no strength in that Constitution. So, what does the church do? Are we just to, uh, you know, sit idly by and, and watch? Are we to preach to these issues? I believe as a pastor, I'm, I'm called to preach. I think sometimes in the face of these atrocities, the church, um, coils back because they don't want to offend. They don't want to step on toes. They don't want to make people angry. Or they think that preaching against these things is inconsistent with God's love and grace. La- yesterday morning, I loved our, small, our men's small group discussion. I'm going to quote you, Mark, if that's okay. We were in John 6, and in John 6, if you're familiar with that, is where Jesus tells the masses, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And I loved what Mark said. He said, you know what? What, what fascinates me about this passage, Jesus understood, and his paraphrase. I always add more words. Mark said it much, much better. Jesus understood that, that that statement was likely to be misinterpreted. But He intentionally made no effort to interpret it for them. He simply stated it as if to say, you better wrestle with this. And He drew a line. There are truths in the Scripture. You find the Scripture doing that with the people. This might rub you. I don't really care. <laughs> and, and so... That's why I say, I'm not preaching this because I'm angry at Waypoint. I know my motive is not. I'm mad at you guys. That's why it's time to do a sermon like this. But the Scripture, when it comes to the wrath of God, speaks a lot about it. And yet you rarely hear the church talking on it. So I'm going to consider it this morning. I've In looking at all these atrocities going on, I was reminded, I just finished reading last month the book of Jeremiah, Two different times in Jeremiah's book, 6.15 and 8.12, God says this to the nation of Israel. He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. In fact, they did not even know how to blush. I said, that's exactly what we're seeing on the news every day. Not only is there no shame, there's not even blushing over it. When we see these things going on, it's not even like... They're laughing. They're filming each other. Now guys, what immediately followed in Jeremiah's day was judgment. That's the historical precedent. The psalmist declared, in your wrath, forget not your mercy. So today we're going to kind of reverse that, in your mercy, forget not your wrath, God. Why is it important that we understand the wrath of God? Why is that important? So let's, let's look at this. Number one, I want to take some time to define what is God's wrath. okay? Because I'm sure when we talk about wrath, you probably have an image in your head of the fire and brimstone type preacher. okay? So there's several words, at least in the Old Testament, that, that the Scriptures use to speak of God's wrath. But the basic definition of wrath is that God hates sin. It's His anger toward wickedness. So God sees what's going on in men's hearts and their actions, and it makes him angry. Because it maligns people, it maligns his image, it destroys families, individuals, and countries. I told my worldview class this week, I gave them an example. I said, I I gave them the example of those men walking in and simply walking out with the merchandise. I said, those men, that's not the first time they've stole. I said, where did it start? Probably start when they are a little, tiny kid going into the penny jar and stealing quarters. I said, "Is in principle, is there any difference in their heart? No. Obviously, what was stolen is different. But if it's not checked when they're little with the little piece of candy, what will happen? It'll go. Jesus said the same thing, right? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're what? You're an adulterer. If you have anger in your heart, toward your brother, you're a murderer. And he didn't say, it's like murdering. He says, you are a murderer. That is murder, because it always begins in the heart. Sin is always an issue and a principle in the heart that then is manifested in our actions. And God looks at that, and it makes him angry, because he didn't create man to be that way. And it destroys him. It destroys him. Exodus 15, 7. There's a word, fury or burning anger. It says this, In the greatness of your majesty, overthrow your adversaries, God. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. Second Chronicles 19.2, a different word is used speaking of rage. God says to King Jehoshaphat that, You helped the wicked, and you loved those who hate the Lord. Therefore, wrath has gone out against you from, from the Lord. Another word yet in Exodus twenty two. through simply translated wrath or ire, says this, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. Numbers 11.33, there's a word translated as anger or rage. It says this, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before they had finished consuming, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. It's the example of of the people grumbling against God. Why would you bring us out in the wilderness to perish? Give us meat. So he provides the quail as a judgment. In the New Testament, there's one word used, orge, is the Greek. We get our English word orgy from it. It means strong passion or desire. And when it's applied to God, it means he has passionate anger against sin. So it's not simply a principle for God. He's passionate about against it. So, what basis does wrath have? Some people talk about wrath as an attribute of God. Others say it's not properly an attribute, attribute but an action of God. Whatever you whatever you think, I, I kind of lean toward the latter. Um, God inherently isn't wrathful because when He pre-existed, there was nothing to be wrathful against, right? I, I think it's more of an actual uh, action against God, God, uh, evil. But wrath is based on God's holiness. It's based on His righteousness, and it's based on His justice. Let's talk about that. 1 John 1.5 says this, that there's no darkness in God. Literally, there's no consequence of sin in God. He is holy. He is completely separate from us. In in fact, Habakkuk 1.13 says that God cannot even look upon sin. His eyes are too pure for that. So God is holy. And there there cannot be any kind of fellowship with God and sin. God is righteous and He's just. In other words, God's way is good. God's way is right. He delights in these things because He is these things. We might have righteousness. We might have justice. God is righteousness and He is just. It is His nature. And as such, He cannot simply look away. Nor can He change His ways any more than He can change His nature. Sin, by its very definition, is a perversion of righteousness. An absence of it. And so it's very... What sin is, guys, and I want you to understand this, when sin exists, it's not just something that we've done. It's literally an assault on who we are to be. We are to be as image bearers of God, just. And when we are unjust, we are assaulting that. I want to speak of God's wrath in a different way as well. To help us see. Because God's wrath flows necessarily from His righteousness, you can think of it this way. Because God loves what's good. Because he loves truth. Because he loves what's pleasant. Because he loves what's right. He must necessarily hate what's wrong. In other words, if we want to speak about a God who is love, he must necessarily also be wrathful. Let me illustrate that for you. Another case I saw this week. I don't know if you guys saw the example of the young college girl named Molly Tibbet in Iowa. I think it was was out for a jog, and a young man saw her, lusted after her, and wanted her. So what'd he do? He kidnapped her, raped her, killed her, and dumped her body in a cornfield. Now when I read that story, I read it as a father with three girls, and my wrath is kindled. <laughs> my anger burns. But you know what really made me burn when I read this story? The defense lawyer, is trying to get this, by the way, the man confessed to the killing and even led the the police to the body. Without a doubt, he's guilty. He walked him into some random cornfield, uncovered her body, said, there she is, I did it. But his lawyer is probably going to get the case thrown out. Do you know why? Because he wasn't properly read his Miranda rights. Is that a perversion of justice? Does that make you angry? It should. And you better believe it makes God angry because He loves what's right and He wants justice for that, that girl. Do you see how it works together? If we can speak about the love of God without being angry at what happens when we sin, we don't really get love. We don't get it. What makes the love of God and grace of God so great is the greatness of the sin that He overcame. I read that story, almost, almost got up and walked out of my office because it made me so angry. If my daughter had been kidnapped, raped and murdered and left dumped in a field and the man who confessed to doing it could walk out over a technicality, I would be tempted to take vengeance into my own hands. I'll be honest. (laughs) And I'll get to that in a minute. Because vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. But we can see how God's wrath is based on His love of what's right, His love of what's just. If we want righteousness upheld, God, you better be wrathful, in other words. We better have an issue and way to solve these injustices. Secondly, what about the Old Testament? You hear this in churches often. The Old Testament is is the God of wrath. The New Testament is the God of love. And, and they're often talked about as two different gods. And very often the Old Testament is just disregarded because the, the two images that God has portrayed in both testaments are very different. We disregard the one for the other. We prefer a God who's loving without wrath. Is that what we should be doing, though? Let's talk about that. Turn with me real quick to Ezekiel 14. I just finished Ezekiel... If you spend any time in the Old Testament, there's no shortage of passages on judgment. That much is true. okay. And if you spend time in the New Testament, comparatively, there is a shortage of passages on judgment. But what's going on in the Old Testament versus the New? Let's talk about it. First, in the Old Testament, why why are so many passages depicting God as vengeance, his, his justice being poured out, His wrath, His anger, over and over and over, whether it's on Israel as His own people or on the other nations, right? One of the favorite arguments of atheists is this, what I just read from uh, Richard Dawkins. God is mean. He's a bully. He's vicious. He's an ethnic cleanser. Is that what's going on when God brings judgment to a people? It's easy to say that, right? You can read any account of God pouring His judgment out and say, oh, he's petty. He he's just doesn't have any self-control. Ezekiel 14, beginning in verse 21, he's speaking to Israel, right? And judgment is coming upon his own people. He says, thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you. Now listen to this. When they see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord. Why does God bring judgment? Is it just because he's petty? No. He never brings judgment without cause. In fact, when he does ethnically cleanse a people group when Israel's coming into the land, it was because those people had so polluted the land with their sin, it needed to be cleansed. They were offering literally their sons and daughters up on the altar to burn alive type cleansing. I heard a I heard a Navy SEAL talk about the what ISIS was doing in the Middle East. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say this as a Christian, that I, I think this is what we need to do today. But he said, in my opinion, the only way we can deal with, with ISIS is you got to go in and wipe them all out. Because what he saw was that they are teaching their children at such a young age, these children are brainwashed and ruined. Now, as a Christian, I believe the gospel can overcome that. So I don't obviously advocate that. But he did recognize a truth that even at a very young age, kids can be so turned and polluted in sin. So we see that happening in the Old Testament, yes. God's judgment is put on display over and over. But never, as Ezekiel 14 says, without cause. Never without cause. So what's different about the New Testament? Are we to simply ignore the examples of the Old Testament in favor Of the views of the New Testament? Do the views of the Old Testament and how they portray God bear any truth for us today? Yes, they do. Here's why. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 12. Paul writes, Now these things Talking about all the Old Testament examples, okay? These things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul certainly saw value in examples of the Old Testament judgment. He said they were written down for something, for our instruction. Why? That we might not do like that. So there's an important principle here. Now we're going to get into my last point that I want to focus on. What place, then, does the wrath of God have in the gospel? Is there a place? Because we often don't see it, but I want us to. I want us to look at this image real quick that I asked Carla to get for me. It's a familiar one. What do you see? Do you see the love of God and mercy of God? Yes. Do you see the wrath of God? We can't understand the gospel without understanding the work of the cross. So what was the cross? The cross is such... A unique event. In fact, let me ask this first. Let me me go back. Did God's wrath end with the work of Christ on the cross? Yes and no. Did the wrath of God end with the work of Christ on the cross? The answer is yes and no. Yes, the wrath of God was averted for those who come to faith in Christ, right? Because the wrath of God was poured out on that man. He took it. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.9. Let me read it for you. Romans 5.9, Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So that work right there in faith in Christ, the payment Penalty for my sin. Faith justifies me and saves me from God's wrath. That is to come. Still to come. Romans 8.1, Paul goes on to say, There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. So yes, God's wrath is ended for those who will come and place their trust in Christ alone. However, is God's wrath ended for those who refuse to repent? And come to faith in the Lord? No. Not at all. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 is such a good example, uh, a chapter where we see this. Go to the book of 2 Peter, or you can just listen and I'll read it to you. Because we see this truth put on display. And we're going to work our way into the gospel from here. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter's dealing with mockers, much like we have today, who are mocking saying, when's the Lord's coming? Where is he? Because everything's continuing as it has for millennial, millennium. Where is he? We hear that today. Peter heard it in his day. Verse four, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Yet they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. and That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water and perished. Noah. Right? But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's a day of judgment coming, he says. So why the delay? Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward y'all. Why not wrath now? Because He's patient. Why is He patient? Not wishing that anyone would perish but that all should reach repentance. And why can He be patient and wish that all would reach repentance? Because practically, this work right here purchased salvation. Potentially for every man. Potentially. Actually, only those who believe it will have it. As Paul said, Jesus is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Positionally, He is Savior of the world. Practically, He is Savior of those who trust Him. So the Gospel properly understood and properly proclaimed is that God's wrath, His fierce anger for the many, many sins over thousands of years that were committed, He withheld pouring it out fully until His own Son could replace us. One of the hardest things, I think, as a pastor when people are struggling with coming to faith in Christ is letting them wrestle with the uncomfortable truth that they are enemies of God in their sin. Because we have a natural tendency to want to be merciful, especially if we've tasted the mercy of God toward ourselves, right? We want to reach out and say, it's going to be okay. God loves you. All true. But you know what? If that person never repents of their sin, Jesus said in John 3, the wrath of God still abides on them presently. They'll never know a thing of God's love because they refuse to come to Him so as to be saved. The Gospel says God poured out His wrath on Christ that we might be saved from it later. His wrath has been averted, has been satisfied, directed upon Jesus, so that His mercy can be directed toward us." So it's not that God abandoned wrath, it's that He fulfilled wrath so as to be able to extend mercy to us. That's the Gospel. When we properly understand, when people properly understand my sin is a stench to God, He looks at it and He says, look at how these people are destroying themselves. It makes him angry. And you and I, though we may not have gone out and raped a girl, we've lusted after people, we've lied to each other, we've cheated, we've stole, we've been angry, we've murdered people in our heart. In principle, we're no different. And it makes God angry because it's all a perversion of who we were to be and who He is. But yet in the Gospel, He's dealt with it in Christ so that we can have forgiveness freely that's the greatness of grace i did not deserve it and not only is it i didn't deserve it it was very costly for me to obtain it it's very costly for me to obtain it it cost the blood of the only son of god so part of the gospel call in the new testament is flee from the wrath to come. That's what Paul said literally to the Thessalonians. You know, when I came and preached the gospel to you, you responded in faith, you believed it, and you fled from the wrath that is to come. One ten. Now in the New Testament era, where, what place does wrath have in the New Testament? Well, for the time being, there isn't. There's grace being offered. And it will continue to be offered until that day. Right? And so... Presently, what place does the church have to be wrathful toward the lost? None. Why? Because Paul said in Ephesians 2.3 that I myself and you all too who've been born again were also once children of wrath by nature. So we can't stand before people who haven't come to faith yet and condemn them. <laughs> I was also a child of wrath by nature. God's wrath abided on me as well. Heavy. But that burden and that penalty was taken away when I trusted in His Son. But when you get to the book of Revelation, which closes the church age out and ushers in the last age of human history, what is the book of Revelation about? And why is that book so difficult for people to read? Because that book is all about God's wrath. No longer, in other words, is grace offered, right? Now it's judgment. And it's hard to read. Let me give you some examples. Revelation 6, the people in the end... We'll call to the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who's seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, who is Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In chapter 11, verse 18, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. 14.19 says this. gives one of the most graphic metaphors, I think, in the entire book of Revelation. It says, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And then in 1915, he, that's Jesus, will tread that winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So there is a place for God's wrath still. He's patient. He's holding it back, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and be saved and that's His mercy. And He can extend mercy because He dealt with it and made a way for us to have mercy simply through the cross. And that's an invitation for anyone here? It's an invitation for all who would hear and believe it. It's offered to all. But practically, who is it that will be spared? We read Romans 5.9, Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, Much more shall we be saved from Him by His life. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says this, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through His Son. In Ephesians 2.3, as I quoted, we were once children of wrath, but now we've received mercy and grace. We're saved by His grace through faith. He goes on to say, those who refuse to turn to Christ and be forgiven, receive His forgiveness, they'll bear the penalty of their own sin, rather than having Christ bear it for them. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with the Jewish leader Nicodemus. Verse 18, He says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Then he goes on in verse 36, the end of the chapter, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, Jesus made it very clear, and it's one of those truths we talked about yesterday morning. This is reality, Nic- Nicodemus. You're under wrath right now, man, because you're guilty of sin. God hates it. We all hate, we, ha- we all have it. But if you come to faith in me, you move out from under my wrath to under my grace. You have eternal life. If you refuse, you remain, it remains abiding on you. First Thessalonians 2.16, Paul speaking of the Jews, always opposing the truth and opposing Christ and opposing his ministry. He said this of the Jews, that they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and they displease God and oppose all mankind. By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So they are always filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. So I want to end answering these few last questions. Why is it important that God maintains his wrath towards sin? And why is it important that the church understands this? No one likes to- talking about this. It's not fun, but it's true. It's a reality. So one of my original questions was, how do we restore? So I thought about what's happening in society, what led me down this path in this sermon, what's going on in our youth so that there's no moral conscience. How do we restore that as a society? Where, how do we get back? Well, first and foremost, it, it happens with the new birth, when someone's born again and they're re- regenerated, made new, right? But I think that there's got to be these uncomfortable truths put before people to wrestle with. And the church has been entrusted with the totality of the Word of God, of who He is. Yes, He's loving and merciful. And yes, we are in an age right now where He's extending grace and patience and mercy and salvation to those who had come to Him. But He has not forgotten His wrath. And He warns us of that. We are simply in a period where if you come, you will be saved. From it. But we've got to put this truth before people. I, I found some quotes from some early church fathers. I, they were wonderful quotes on this point. The early church father Novation said this, "...when we read of his anger and consider certain descriptions of his wrath, we are not to understand them to be attributed to him in the same sense in which they are to humans. For although these things, anger and wrath, can corrupt man, and they do, They cannot corrupt the divine power. All those angers or hatreds of God or whatever there is of this kind, now listen to what he says, are displayed for our healing. They arose out of wisdom, not from vice. Do you understand his insight there? It's tremendous. Why does God display His wrath for our healing? You know what he's saying? When we talk about regaining a social or individual conscience, How is it regained? How are we healed when it's been lost? When you understand the sinfulness of sin and the fear of God toward it. That's healing. You see, it's a a deformity. It's an unhealthy thing when the conscience doesn't feel that. Does that make sense? When you can look at situations going on in our society and not be moved by it, We have an unhealthy conscience that needs to be healed. How is it healed? You better understand the wrath of God toward it. He hates that. He's not for that. It heals us. It restores a rightness to the situation. The early church father, Lactantius, said this, It is the fear of God alone that guards the mutual society of men. By this, the fear of God, life itself is sustained, protected, and governed. Now, listen to this next line in view of what I've pointed out is going on in our culture. He says this, However, such fear is taken away if man is persuaded that God is without anger. He's right on. There's no fear of sin when men are persuaded that God is not angry about it. When we preach the gospel only, that God is love, God is love, God is love, yes, He is. He will give you love. But he's still wrathful. Second, I also think that we need to grapple with these realities presented in Scripture. We don't like reading about God's judgment in the Old Testament, so most of us never go there. We don't see how it fits into the totality of who he is or the gospel message. But it's not that God has changed, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's because we don't understand the totality of Scripture. Mercy and wrath are not incompatible attributes because they're exercised on two different subjects. Mercy toward the repentant, wrath toward the unrepentant. It's not a contradiction. He will always be merciful, and He will always be gracious to the broken, sorrowful, and repentant person. He will never cast that one out, He said. You come broken, you're my person. Remember what David said in Psalm 51? The sacrifices of God are what? A broken and contrite spirit. These, O God, you will not despise. God loves brokenness because it's in brokenness that we abandon our sin and we're restored to right fellowship. So He will always extend mercy and grace to the repentant, but He will always be angry at the unrepentant. The psalmist also says God is angry with sinners every day. He will never take it off because He can't. He is holy. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 is this, For you may be sure of this, Paul wrote, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, which is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see, we've allowed a gospel to take root in the church, unfortunately, that that breeds this contempt for God's holiness because it misunderstands His love and His grace. It's it's the reverse of Romans 6.1 where Paul says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Yes! (laughs) Paul says, by no means. No way. If you think that grace is just a license to keep doing sin, you don't know grace yet. Grace gives you the motivation to not sin anymore. Because you see, good man, I should have been condemned. What, what did God do for me? He forgave me. So grace is the motivation to not sin. This gospel that just allows people to live however they want to live and yet claim to be a follower of Christ is a false gospel. They have yet to come to know Christ as He is. Third, I want to ask the church. Okay, We're going to get apply it to the church now. In 2 Peter 3.11... Peter asks the church this. After talking about God's judgment to come, and yet this is a period of His patience, not wishing for any to perish, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It's a rhetorical question. But church, I want to go back to what Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, all these atheists rightly point out. When people profess to be believers and yet live like hell, are they not right to point out and say, you're no morally better than us? They've got a point. It's hard to read their literature. I don't don't like it. But I find value because often they see the hypocrisy of the church where we don't. (laughs) And they call it out. And we need that. Honestly, we need that. So that's why Peter says that. What, what kind of lives ought we to live, church, knowing both the grace as well as the fury of God? We ought to be holy. We ought to be godly, waiting for his coming. Oftentimes, our fear of sin is more a fear of the temporary circumstance or the temporary punishment it might cause. Do you know what I'm saying? When we sin, we often think first and foremost of of, uh, our spouses or our children or our jobs and what it might do to that. What it should cause, though, is what about my relationship with God, first and foremost? I don't want to treat God's grace licentiously. I don't want to treat it as a license to sin, understanding His wrath and hatred for it. Last of all, I'll end with this as what I spoke to. This is why I'm not preaching a hellfire and brimstone message. Okay, There is a warning out there. God's wrath won't leave people who are unrepentant. They abide in it. That's terrifying. But you know what? I don't know the sins of your hearts. I don't know the sins of your mind. The Holy Spirit has to convict you of that. You do. But I do want to caution the church that just because God will exercise wrath doesn't mean that the church should and we're specifically warned in Romans twelve nineteen 19-21, give place to wrath, give place to vengeance, because that is God's, not ours. The church can't ever exalt itself and condemn. We've received grace just like we're offering to them. We're not in a position to be wrathful when we ourselves were once under His wrath. Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, Rather, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Give place to wrath. Keep those hot coals on his head. Right? There's no greater testimony of the seriousness of sin, as well as the grace of God, than a believer who refuses to practice it with the world, and yet still loves the world. Does that make sense? There's no greater testimony of the severity of sin and yet the grace of God at the same time than the believer who refuses to go down that road and yet still loves the individual. That's where God's holiness and truth and mercy and grace and wrath are almost clearly seen. I fear God. I'm not going down there. But I still love You and I want you to come out here. That's the gospel invitation. I love, as I was praying through this message, I was, um, honestly, I'm not fearful of how people receive it. Um, because I, I, my motivation is not out of anger toward us, right? I just want us to understand there's a place for God's wrath, and we need to understand that as a church. I fear for those people who refuse to turn from their sin. It's terrifying. In fact, those people whose hearts are hard, I'd encourage them to go read the Old Testament. And it's written for our instruction. God's wrath is terrifying. The cross of Christ is terrifying. But the Gospel is an offer for any. When they're under conviction, when they have those things in their hearts and their minds, maybe they've sinned openly, whatever it might be, the Gospel is the invitation to say, you know what, you deserve wrath but He's offering you grace. And it's yours freely. Turn from it and live. It goes on in the book of Ezekiel. I read chapter 14 where God says, "You know, I didn't bring judgment without cause. And then four chapters later in chapter 18, He says this, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I don't. I would that they would turn and live. That's the invitation. You know what my heart is? I want you to turn and live. This is not the plan I have for you. I delight in mercy over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment, the Scripture says. And He's made that path possible so that the future of judgment that we know we deserve doesn't have to be our reality. That's the great truth of the Gospel. And God puts it out there continually. It might rub some. It might cause some to run run away angry. Yeah, it might. But it also might wake some people up in their dead conscience to say, you know what? I'm going to run to the Savior. I'm going to run to Him, not from Him. And if that's the case, praise God. That's the gospel. It's the power of God and the salvation. The wrath of God's been satisfied. I no longer am under it. I'm free. No fear of punishment. No fear of guiltiness. I've been made new. The blood of Christ has washed my guiltiness away. My conscience has been made clean. What a tremendous gift the Gospel offers us. If you want to bow your head with me and close your eyes. And I want to just ask you to to think, whether you have come to faith in Christ, whether you haven't, I don't know where, where you're at, but in either case, I just want you to think about this message in perspective God's wrath is terrible. It's fierce. It's unrelenting. It's horrible, but it's deserved. We don't like telling people that. I get it. But in, in one sense, there's no more gracious thing that we can say. In fact, if God didn't say it, if He was an earthly judge and he were to look at that murder of that girl and say, you know what? I'm a loving judge. I'm going to let you go. I would be angry at that judge for perverting justice. I don't want God to be... I don't want people to be under His wrath, but I don't want God to abandon it because then we have no sense of right and wrong and we will destroy ourselves. So just think about that. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, wherever you stand, if you are a believer, you have come out from under His wrath and you are under His grace. If you're not, the invitation is for you. He invites all who would receive Him. He would make them children of God. He would pardon freely. We can't do anything to earn that. But as we saw that picture of Christ on the cross, Christ earned that salvation for us. And He gives it to us freely by faith. So all you need to say in your heart is, Lord, I do recognize the sins of my heart, the sins of my mind, the sins of my life. I confess those to You. I confess my need for You. And I want to turn from them, and I want to turn and place my faith in Christ who paid the penalty of the wrath of God for it. And if that's your heart's cry, you can pray that prayer. You can believe that in your heart, and God will answer you. He will take your sin away. He will make you a new creature. He will forgive you freely and love you greatly. And He will cause you to be a new creature. No longer a vessel of wrath, but a vessel of His grace, a token of His grace to the world. Everyone who's come to faith in Christ has come by some road, Many different roads, all leading to the same Lord, to the same place, the need to be forgiven. Maybe your sins aren't like the sins that are so egregious in the news, but they're sins nonetheless. God doesn't judge you for what you do well. He judges us for what we don't do well. And all of us have failed. So I want to offer that to you. That's the offer of the gospel. You can receive it. You can believe it right now in your heart. And in your heart, purpose, Lord, I'm turning from this and I'm following you. I want to encourage you, if that's where you're at, and you're ready for that, to come talk to me. Whether now, whether later, my number's in the bulletin, you can call me, or you can come right now. It doesn't matter. There's no shame in it. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us need forgiveness. And the great thing today is He's offering it freely. So as we sing, if you feel moved to come, come. If not, worship Him.